So the, this chapter of Christ in the Covenants, Christ of the Covenants, was covenant and law in the proclamation of the prophets. So the main idea was what is the relationship of the covenant and law delivered through Moses at Mount Sinai to the rest of the prophets. <clears throat> so which came first, the prophets or the law and the covenant? Well, the law and the covenant came before the rest of the prophets. The, Bible, the Bible's testimony is clear on that. We'll get into that uh, in the next section here, and we're going to cover that before we come back to the discussion question. But the law and the covenant provide the very foundation for the ministry of the prophets. Without the law and the covenant, the rest of the prophets have no standard to which to appeal. They have no grounds to uh, rebuke God's covenant people or the nations around them uh, when they are sinning. They have no grounds to encourage them when they need encouragement, when they have the threat of exile. Yes? We're <clears throat> primarily talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, okay. I, I was, I'm sorry. I, I, I was really wondering which one. We're primarily talking about the Mosaic Covenant this morning. We will talk about uh, the Abrahamic, the Davidic. The uh, We'll talk about those at the end of the chapter, though, as well. Okay. I saw Sinai, but I want to make sure. <laughs> okay. Yes. The, the law and covenant delivered through Moses at Mount Sinai is the foundation that we're discussing for the rest of the prophets. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the biblical testimony for Mount Sinai coming before the rest of the prophets. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson addresses that this has been this has historically always been the case. He even cites the, the Jewish tradition uh, post-Second Temple uh, Judaism in the Talmud and the Midrash as citing Moses coming before the prophets, that all the prophets expound upon and build upon uh, the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. He quotes John Calvin there. In my opinion, the shortest way of treating this subject is to trace the prophets to the law from which they derive their doctrine. For the prophets utter nothing but what is connected with the law. So there's cards on the table there. He lays out the prophets don't, don't utter anything except for what's already been revealed by Moses. So the question then is how? Well, the prophets are expounding upon the law. They're making specific application of the principles revealed by Moses. Uh, they also expound upon the blessings and curses found there, where the Lord tells Israel what he will do for them if they are faithful, or he tells them what he will do to them if they are not. And he says that the prophets make specific applications of those, uh, those blessings and curses. So they, they make specific application of the Lord has promised that you would be, uh, <clears throat> you would be driven out of the nation. Well, now they're going to prophesy that Assyria is the nation to do that. Babylon is the nation to do that. Now, he's also promised that you would be restored. So the specific application is after this exile, you'll be brought back to Israel. That's the instances that he cites of the prophets. They are expounding upon the general 
principles, promises, blessings, and curses revealed by Moses, specifically, specific historical situations. So, the scripture's own testimony is clear. The law and the covenant at Sinai came before the rest of the prophets. First discussion question then, back up at the top of that section. What was the difference then between the true prophecy and false prophecy? Whether it came to pass is, yes. Yeah, obviously a false prophet, false prophecy is not going to come to fruition. It's not going to actually happen if it's false. Yes, the false prophets did not expound upon the law, or at least they didn't do so properly. So uh, where the true prophets expounded upon the law, they revealed specifically, they, uh, they revealed more fully what Moses revealed before them. False prophets would go off away from that, or they would twist it. Uh, well, again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later when we talk about the different covenants <laughs> and the different prophets. Um, but so, how would that difference apply to any anything for the church today? If we've discussed that prophecy is no longer in effect, how what can we glean from the difference between true and false prophecy there? Yeah, twisting the scriptures, undermining the authority of the scriptures. Yeah, no, that's great, exactly. Um, the, the preaching uh, ministry was exactly what I had in mind, that if a preacher comes up, we've discussed that preaching is prophetic in a small p sense of the word, uh, but if a preacher comes and does not expound upon the word, then he's not preaching rightly. He has to rightly expound upon the revealed word of God and then apply that in a proper way to the lives of the people of God, to the lives of the church properly, not out of context, not ripping out, uh, <clears throat> yeah, not ripping out of context, not developing new uh, commands that we don't find, finding consciences outside of the word of God. Thank you. So, O. Palmer Robertson then discusses the reconstructed tradition history. So he says that the Bible is clear that the covenant at 
Sinai comes before the rest of the prophets. But scholarship has greatly debated that, and they've argued no. In fact, the prophets came first, and then the, Deut- uh, <clears throat> the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll get there. <clears throat> yep. Thank you. That's a great question. So, sorry? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Oh. <laughs> um, so, the idea is not that the prophets chronologically came, we got the story wrong, the prophets came onto the scene, and then, you know, they were prophesying, and then Moses came and led. The idea is that the prophets uh, in Israel came up with their prophetic utterances. They had these religious experiences and delivered these words from God, and then uh, conservative or uh, more legalistic uh, Factions of Israel came in and created the uh, Pentateuch, the, De- the Deuteronomy, Leviticus. They created this law afterwards and, and made it up. It's a fiction. Uh, and then they tried to uh, read it into the prophets. So, <clears throat> Nick, what we were talking about, is this based on evidence or is this simply based on presuppositions? Uh, because uh, Robertson quotes here Julius Wellhausen, which he says is uh, probably we should give him credit, the most credit for coming up with this idea. He says that prophecy died when its precepts attained to the force of laws. The prophetic ideas lost their purity when they became practical. So for Wellhausen, he loves the prophets as long as they don't touch anybody's lives, as long as they don't tell them how to live then the prophets are great. They look at how they have these ecstatic experiences and, and they, they've met with God. Uh, but don't tell anybody how to live now. God didn't tell you anything about telling people what to do. Uh, this next quote I have attributed to Gerhard von Rad. That was not correct. Uh, that was actually R.E. Clements in his commentary on Deuteronomy. But some parts of Deuteronomy cannot have been written as early as King Josiah's reign, since they made allusions to disasters that befell Jerusalem in the 6th century BCE. So, he starts from the idea that God can't have revealed future events. He says simply that Deuteronomy can't have been written before all of the prophets, because it talks about things that would happen much later. So it just doesn't, the math doesn't add up. Uh, He doesn't address any instances where these scholars bring up evidence, manuscript evidence, or uh, anything like that to argue the case. They simply start with the answer that they, that they want, that the uh, Pentateuch is a fiction and that it doesn't have authority and that the prophets actually, you know, Israelites came in and made it up later. Yes, sir.
Yeah. A uh, a perennial temptation, certainly, to only only believe the only believe for the the blessings and not to use the law to admonish uh, against sin. Uh, so, Robertson makes three observations based on that idea that uh, that the Pentateuch was created as a fiction later. And the first is that those promises of blessings or curses were then just made up in the midst of, uh, of crisis, like the exile, or just before them. The second is that God did not warn his people about the curses ahead of time, so they, they weren't given a, a gracious warning from God. And the third is that God held Israel accountable to the law without revealing the law or the consequences. So God... Uh, demands that Israel obey the law, plans to curse them if they don't obey the law, and then decides that he's going to withhold all of the law from them and the warnings of the consequences of not obeying it. So, uh, next discussion question. Yes, sir. Now, that's a great lead into the next question, which is, you know, why does why does the origins of Deuteronomy matter? Um, this is very, you know, it's great to hear uh, Mr. Robertson tackling higher criticism, but what does that mean to us in our lives? Most of us aren't reading higher criticism on, on the weekdays, on our lunch breaks. So what's, what is the application here for us? What, what value is it to us?
Yeah, that was one of the applications that he actually made was comparing the Lord to uh, the gods of the pagan nations around them. That he, he said, if, if this theory is true and the Lord did not uh, deliver his people out of Egypt and deliver the law and the covenant to them at Sinai, then he's no better than all of the other gods around them. So why, why should we, as people in the 21st century, uh, believe on him? If he is no better than these other gods who have, you know, no one, no one worships Baal or Ashtara, uh, rightly so, because they're no gods. That's a great point. Uh, that's another another thing that Robertson addresses. He says, I, I do not remember who he cites, but he cites one of these uh, critics like uh, um, like Wellhausen and Clements, uh, where they say that the law was a later addition that shoehorns itself in everywhere and blocks up access to heaven. Uh, but that's that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the whole purpose. As you said, it's the, the purpose was to point to Christ. Yeah, and um, another issue is uh, maybe like me, this is a novel concept to you, this idea that somebody, people 
actually believe that the prophets came first and then uh, the Pentateuch was just created as an afterthought later. But they, you know, we've all heard uh, deconstruction, deconstructing our faith. We, we probably all know somebody um, or somebody we love has entertained the idea or has deconstructed their faith. That is often... Um, one of the ways they do that is to undermine the authority of the scriptures. And this is an argument that undermines the authority of the scriptures. It undermines the authority of God's word. As Pastor David said, it's really helpful for us to hear that argument that's addressed by Dr. Robertson and just clobbered. Just, no, take the, take the rug right out from under it. Yes, sir. Praise God that he, uh, he raised up those men that we can <laughs> just sit at their feet a little <laughs> and learn from them how to address it. Yeah. Good. Um, all right, let's move on to the next section, uh, the central factor in law. So Palmer Robertson says that the central theme that runs through law was the prohibition against idolatry. He says that that is the linchpin where all of the law comes together that prohibition against idolatry. Um, so I stated it positively. That means that the law, the main purpose of the law is the right worship of the true God. And negatively, it's simply that prohibition against idolatry. Uh, he, these quotes are both Palmer Robertson from the chapter. Distinctive to Israel was the fact that the invisible God delivered them from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt and claimed them as his own people. For this reason, the nation must never stoop to worship idols that can be seen. So, uh, right off the bat, this, well, actually, what, what did the Israelites do immediately from being delivered out of Egypt by the unseen God? They built an idol, and they said, Behold, these are your gods that delivered you out of Egypt. This is Yahweh. This is, the, this is the, the most important thing that they do not do, and that's immediately what they do. Um, because the unseen God delivered them out of Egypt, they are absolutely not to make any image of anything under the, in, in the heavens or under the heavens on the earth to represent him. He is, he is unseen, uh, the true and living God. Then uh, Palmer Robertson says, essential to the idea of idolatry is the desire for more things. The things that God has made must never be substituted for the God who made them. The connection between covetousness and idolatry is made, explicit, explicit, is made explicitly when the New Covenant scriptures speak of greed, 
which is idolatry. So uh, idolatry then is really the root of all, all sin, is that we're worshiping something other than the true and living God. Uh, or we're, we're trying to worship the true and living God wrongly for some, some sort of gain, some desire, some inordinate desire. So uh, as Jesus told us, the law is summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if that is the summary of the law, then all sin is a failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Uh, and a failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, so, what does idolatry look like for us today? And how can we address it in our lives? Because it doesn't look the same as it did to the Israelites there. No one here is trying to make golden calves and say that this is, this is Yahweh. This God delivered us out of Egypt. Um, but idolatry is still a temptation that we face. As Colossians says, uh, Greed is idolatry. Okay, so asserting your own needs over over everyone else. Yeah, so that, that selfishness on the part of someone else is sin on their, their end, idolatry on their end. That uh, refusal on our part to admonish or, to, or that desire to uh, excuse it away or justify it, that's idolatry on our part. Some, we have some, something that we are desiring more than to love God rightly and to love our neighbor rightly.
Um, You have to melt it down. <laughs> 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 yeah. He had it all. all. Any power you could think of, any type of sexual pleasure you could think of, all the money in the world. And yet he said the same thing, not in those words. God's the only thing that can clean your heart. Nothing. Yeah. And it's just we keep going back to other things. I think we're connected to Adam. But only God filled that heart. Amen.
Yeah. Like a dog returning to its vomit. Yeah. He's not withholding good things. Yeah, and what's so tricky about the idolatry that we typically face is uh, you could put your dog to death, but you can't, you can't get rid of your spouse. So, you know, the Israelites had these actual physical little figurines uh, that we think of when we think of idol worship, but uh, we maybe idolize your job your bank account, you can't get rid of those things. You get a new job, you still have to deal with money. You still have, money still has to exchange, exchange hands. So we have to figure out how to address uh, idolatry of the heart in a way that doesn't just put the sin in the things, uh, but recognizes that the sin is in us and in how we treat and view the things. Well, and to take an example of, say, alcohol, maybe you overcome uh, alcoholism, but you don't address the, the root sin issue in coming to Christ, then you may relocate that sin to something that is less physically self-destructing, uh, but you're still finding something new. Yeah. We are, thank you, that was a really great discussion. We're, we're running out of time though, so we'll try to run through uh, the, the rest of it. Um, so, good, central factor in law, prohibit, uh, prohibition against idols, the right worship of the true and living God. So, the central factor in covenant, well, is that law abstract or is it personal? It's personal, it comes from a personal God the law is never an abstract or arbitrary declaration. The law of God's grounded in the character of God. It's an expression of that. It's, and it's his 
telling us how we can rightly be in relationship to him and with each other. So uh, Palmer Robertson states that the unity within all the covenants is what he calls the Emmanuel principle. I shall be your God and you shall be my people formulates the heart of all God's covenantal relationships. So uh, the covenant blessings that come from those are from his people honoring him rightly and repenting in faith when they fail to do so. The covenant curses come from them failing to honor him rightly and failing to repent in faith for doing so. So uh, God graciously administers his laws through the covenants and he provides uh, paths to restoration as Jonathan pointed out earlier, all pointing to Christ, the sacrificial system that we have, they all point to the ultimate sufficient sacrifice of Christ uh, in the future for them, the past for us. And he says, never may the nation demand blessing because of the perfection of their law keeping. Instead, the people must, excuse me, the people must always plead humbly on the basis of the unmerited promises given graciously in the covenant. So that is the unifying factor of the different covenants uh, revealed in the Old Testament uh, are, is the Emmanuel principle. God, I shall be your God, uh, you shall be my people. And, all, and all, all grace, all based on grace. The, and then the diversity within the covenants that he addresses is uh, more of this idea, kind of similar to the idea that the prophets came first and then they created the Pentateuch as a fiction uh, to, to serve their own ends is the idea that the covenants are either conditional or unconditional and they kind of alternate. So the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. He makes promises to Abraham and it's, that's just the way it's going to be. It doesn't matter. Uh, the Mosaic is highly conditional. He gives them the law. He tells them here's the blessings if you keep it. Here's the curses if you don't. And then the Davidic is unconditional. I'll put you on the throne. You'll always have a, a son on the throne. Uh, end, of, end of the story. So then, then they proceed to argue that uh, this view of the covenants then bleeds into the prophets, and they set different prophets against each other. Uh, the examples he used were Isaiah. He's very unconditional. He's very focused on the Davidic covenant. Uh, that Jeremiah is very conditional. As we've discussed, he's talking about the curses often because the Israelites are about to be sent into exile. Uh, so we have a problem then because we have prophets and covenants set against each other instead of being uh, unified. And again, this goes back to the presupposition like it did with the, uh, the history of the prophets uh, versus Deuteronomy. Uh, Scholars who want to divide the prophets have a problem with passages within those conditional uh, prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah that address uncondition seemingly unconditional uh, promises. And their solution is to just claim those problems were added later. They weren't in the original prophets. We added them in later uh, to, try to, to try to bring it all back together and make it a unified, make a unified front from all the prophets. So, uh, real quick, last discussion question. Are there conditions or not? Was that? Yes. Yeah, but there's a caveat. <laughs>
Yeah, that's a great summary. Yeah. Um, uh, two quotes to end before uh, from Palmer Robertson. Certainty of fulfillment is not the same thing as absence of conditions. And he's addressing primarily the, the Davidic covenant when he talks about that, that there's the certainty that David would always have a son on the throne is not the absence of there being conditions for, for that. And then he says, David charges Solomon to keep the decrees, commands, laws, and requirements of the law of Moses so that the Lord may keep his promise to him. These covenantal promises shall realize their fulfillment, not because they are given without conditions, but because the Lord himself, in his grace, will see to the fulfillment of all conditions. So, as Travis said, that love, that love for his people, that then he makes covenant with promises and blessings. And the, these aren't conditions of our entering into the covenant, but requirements uh, from being in the covenant. Yeah. Right. Uh, real quick, questions, comments, heartfelt concerns? No? Good. All right. I will pray, and that'll be it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you, uh, you love us, that you loved us first, and that you chose to, to save us, to draw us to yourself, to bring us into a covenant with you, that you will not forsake us, uh, that you promise to safely bring us home to glorify us with you. And Father, we praise you for, for your grace and your mercy. I ask that you would edify and encourage all of us here from this discussion uh, this morning and that you prepare our hearts to worship you in a few short minutes and to uh, sit under your word preached and I ask that you would uh, remove idolatry from our hearts that we could rightly love and worship you and love each other as ourselves. In your son's holy name, amen.